Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Diana Nero. I am the chair of the cross-border practice group here at Ogletree Deacons, and I have the wonderful fortune of being joined by Patty Shapiro, the latest and greatest member of the cross-border practice group, who joins us actually after having been in-house as the head of global compliance and legal. Is that right? Did I get that right? Vice, yeah, vice president of international compliance and legal. All right, she, yeah, better that she say it than I. Um, at an EOR, and so we thought we would take this opportunity um, to talk about EORs and PEOs um, because we're seeing a huge expansion in remote work, um, cross-border, and we just thought it was a really timely topic. So, Patty, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Patty Shapiro. Um, I'm happy, really happy to be a part of the cross-border group. Um, I just joined Ogletree a few months ago and I, I just adore this firm um, and the opportunities to work with all of our clients from a wide array of backgrounds, um, doing all sorts of interesting things internationally. So very Absolutely. happy to be here. Well, so the cool thing about today is that I'm going to interview Patty. So I'm going to start with the most basic of questions. Patty, I have heard words like professional employer organization, staffing firm, employer of record. I know that you were actually working for an EOR, employer of record firm. What is the difference between an EOR and a PEO? Yeah, so colloquially, it's really common to say PEO to just mean an organization that you contract with to hire contingent workers on your behalf. Um, And sometimes even people use it to describe staffing firms, but they are different things. So a professional employer organization, a PEO, is technically one um, that is a behind-the-scenes partner of a company. So they specialize in... um, creating an entity if necessary in a different country for a company in order to employ there. And then that company, so um, the US-based company with this um, in-country affiliate would be the actual employer of the individuals that they hire rather than having an intermediary. So when you're talking about an EOR, an employer of record, you're actually contracting with a company to hire people on your behalf. So they're performing work for you, but they're actually employed by a completely separate entity. So in that context, the EOR is literally the employer of record, but the client is more of what I call the de facto employer, the employer that actually receives the benefit of the services? Exactly. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So what do you think the biggest challenge is for employers using an EOR? I think that it's difficult, um, especially as U.S. business people, to think of a contingent workforce as a separate and distinct group of your personnel. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really need to be for legal and compliance reasons. Um, but especially in today's day and age, companies want to integrate their entire workforce, contingent or not, and have them have a very similar and, u- and unique experience, whatever that is for their company. So whether that mean a similar onboarding experience, receiving the same 
um, policies and documents, that kind of thing. Um, but then companies run into risks in doing that with contingent workers, so those that are truly employed by an EOR because they're not their employees. And especially when it comes down to the hiring manager level or direct supervisors of contingent workers, it's difficult for them to understand processes for um, discipline, those kinds of procedures, and then, of course, terminating uh, contingent workers and understanding that that's not actually their role. It's the EOR's role. I think that's a really, really good point. It is definitely something that I see quite a bit. Um, and it, you know, clients that I'm seeing using EORs are doing so because it's a country um, where there's incredible talent, right? That they just need to hire, but they're not ready to be physically present themselves there. Um, but it's very hard to sort of make the distinction, you know, just because you're not physically there as, you know, for HR folks who want to have like a really wonderful employee experience, right. it can be very challenging, right? Because you, because of legal reasons, it probably does make more sense to have them be treated separately. But, but yeah, I exactly. could see that would be tricky for sure. It requires a lot of education. I think when companies start using EORs, especially globally um, at all levels, because sometimes um, the people that are contracting with EORs, they understand or they, or they learn quickly what that relationship looks like, but then it doesn't trickle down to those that are actually working with the contingent yeah. workers. Yep. And that's where you get into some hairy issues. A hundred percent. And I do think there's probably some line between like, you know, being practical and business savvy and wanting the people to feel included and right. sort of walking the line on the potential legal risk. I mean, I presume if the EOR is doing its job in many countries, I know it doesn't work, for, for example, in like European countries necessarily, but if they're doing their job complying with the local country's legislation from a labor and employment perspective, um, you know, at least there's not two claims to be brought or could there, could that be the case? There, it's always possible. Yeah. Anything's possible in the world of law. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, that's true. Um, that's why it's important to have a really good relationship and a really strong contract yep. with your EOR. Absolutely, yes. So that's just to sort of clarify how that works. So the, the EOR hires the employees, and then you, as the, you being the client, as the employer, in fact, you enter into a services agreement with EOR. Is that how that works? Exactly. Got yep. it. So um, the services agreement is basically the the foundation of the relationship with the EOR. Um, and so it's important that the, the liability and all the potential issues are really clearly defined. The relationships are clearly defined there. Um, and that's the first step to mitigate risk on the company's side. So here's a question. Why don't employers just engage people internationally as independent contractors? Like why go through all of the headache of having to use another company, especially as we talk about if you want to mitigate risk, you can't really integrate them as much as you'd want to. Yeah, and a lot of companies, I think their first step when they start um, expanding outside of the U.S., that's their thought too, is it'll be yeah. just simpler, quicker, easier to engage um, individuals' talent as independent contractors rather than going through all this rigmarole. But there are a number of potential pitfalls in engaging independent contractors internationally, just like here in the U.S., right? We have a lot of legislation state by state, same is true internationally, country by country, about what actually is an independent contractor. Um, and in the American business world specifically, contractor is often used interchangeably with the word contingent worker to a lot of U.S. business That's people. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. That means the same thing. But contractor, legally speaking, is a 
specific type of individual that is basically running their own business. They're not an employee. So that looks, that should look different. They're generally not paid on an hourly basis or something like that. They're usually working on a, a fixed project or for some defined period of time. They're deciding when and how to do work. Um, they provide their own tools and equipment. Those kinds of factors pretty much universally identify an independent contractor over an employee. And when companies go out and engage just anybody for um, as an independent contractor, even though they're actually going to be working indefinitely just alongside their internal FTEs, um, and basically it looks the arrangement looks just like their internal employees, then there's potential risk for misclassification claim. It exposes a U.S. company to another country's laws, which can be very challenging um, for companies that have no experience or, or no understanding of those laws. Um, employment protections outside of the U.S. are a lot greater than within the U.S. Um, there's also potential risk of creating a permanent establishment in another country, um, depending on what kind of activity these people are doing in country. Um, so there's just a lot of pitfalls that I think are often overlooked when engaging independent contractors. Um, and unfortunately, many US companies find that out the hard way. Absolutely, and this is not legal advice, but I will say that if they are not a contractor for purposes of US tests, they are most likely not a contractor in any other country. They're probably going to be an employee. And one of the analogies I give is like, unless they're literally a security, you know, company or providing, you know, air conditioning services right. for you, they're probably not going to be considered a contractor. So that's a good right. reason to use an EOR. Absolutely. Yeah. It puts a little bit of a buffer between the company and the potential risk um, and allows you to mitigate that somewhat. Absolutely. And you mentioned other countries' legislation from a labor and employment perspective being far more uh, protective than we're used to in the U.S. Can you speak to that a little bit and, and what yeah. would be surprising for employers to hear about other countries' laws? Yeah. In my experience, always the most surprising thing for um, U.S. business people to learn when going international is that at-will employment does not exist outside of the U.S. So at-will employment here in the U.S. means that you can terminate anybody at any time for any reason. There's Provided really it's not a discriminatory one. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of flexibility for companies Absolutely. here. And then in basically every country outside of the U.S. that does not exist. So termination requires all sorts of loopholes. You have to have um, good cause. You have to give written notice. Um, sometimes there's a very formal procedure that you have to go through. Sometimes you need approval. Like in the Netherlands, right. you need approval to terminate. Yeah. yeah. And so sometimes the only option to get out of an employment relationship, practically speaking, is to negotiate a mutual termination agreement with the employee, which can be very costly. Like you said, in the Netherlands, that... Um, is generally a route that employers tend to go, and then they can end up spending seven to nine months um, of an employee's salary just in their severance payment to end that relationship. Absolutely, absolutely. And in some countries, because folks are entitled to back pay for the duration of the time that they bring their claim, it can be, and so in addition to the severance, the notice, any other termination payments right. that they're entitled to, uh, they also get back pay once they bring a claim for those years that they waited out the litigation. So it can definitely be very costly. Here's one that I I've been seeing a lot, and it goes back to your point about wanting to integrate you know, EOR employees within your own workforce to have a really seamless employee experience. And I think many companies think 
of the issuance of equity as being just something that they can do with their non-employees. Tell me about that. Have you seen that happen in practice? Yeah, absolutely. Especially with um, startups or up and coming tech companies. Um, That's something, a way that they're really used to incentivizing their FTEs. And so the um, logical next step for them is to extend that to their global workforce. But again, that distinction between who are your employees and who are non-employees becomes really important. Um, Oftentimes, plan documents, so equity plan documents, don't even provide for the provision of equity to a non-employee. So that could be a obstacle just straight out the gate. And then on top of that, there are all sorts of logistical hurdles um, in attempting to issue equity, especially to a contingent worker through an EOR. the primary one, I would say, is oftentimes equity it vests at a point, right, obviously. Um, and then that triggering event is when the payment happens, which could be long after the person has stopped providing services for you. Mm-hmm. So when they've stopped being employed in an EOR arrangement, the EOR can't issue payment to right. a non-employee. So after they've been terminated and they have this gross lump sum due, there's no practical way to withhold the proper social security contributions and taxes. Um, the U.S. company doesn't have a mechanism to do that. And now that the employment's ended, neither does the EOR. So oftentimes a uh, better incentive strategy for a global contingent workforce is is cash-based incentives so cash is king unless you're prepared to like do something like accelerate the vesting schedule or you know allow people to vest when you you know contingent workers to vest when you don't allow other employees to vest which i think creates like its own host of issues so i think you're right i think if you can try to come up with a way to compensate individuals that perhaps mirrors you know the same incentives and the reason that you give people equity but in the form of cash that makes a ton of sense yeah there's a lot of options for that too you can get very creative with deferred cash awards or phantom equity plans Um, but it requires some brainstorming it's not a simple solution absolutely so here's another one and i um you know GDPR, data privacy, it just keeps growing and growing and is not going away. It is a huge area of the law. Just from a global high-level perspective, does that play into the EOR relationship at all? Absolutely. And I think it's something that often goes overlooked, unfortunately, but it's an important piece of the puzzle um, because it's a potential risk for everybody involved. So even U.S. companies that are engaging through an EOR um, need to be aware that they also have obligations with respect to data privacy when engaging with somebody in a different country. So all of the countries have different versions of data privacy legislation or, um, or some common law addressing it. But The general gist of it is that there should be some sort of informed consent to process um, somebody's personal information. So anything that would identify someone like a name or a telephone number in order to record that information and store it and then use it or share it with somebody, that should all be disclosed to the person that whose information it is. And um, in the context of an EOR relationship, that does put some onus on the company receiving the services despite not being the employer. Granted, a lot of the burden rests on the employer of record um, because they're handling much more sensitive information like bank account information and that kind of thing. But it does also limit the amount of information that can be shared between an employer of record and a company in the US. I've seen 
Um, sometimes there's um, like around the holidays, U.S. companies want to give some gifts to their contingent workforce globally or their entire workforce. Um, and in doing so, we'll ask the EOR for like everybody's home address, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, that puts everybody in a sticky data privacy issue. Um, and all you want to do is issue a gift. Right, I, but everything about cross-border work is like no good deed goes unpunished. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the reality is that, that the EOR shouldn't be issuing or sending you that kind of sensitive information, at least not without getting the consent from the employees directly. Um, and I think that can be very frustrating for companies that are just trying to do something nice, like you said, issue a gift. A due diligence process in the beginning of engaging an EOR, or at least when you when move into a new country, meaning starting to engage uh, workers in a country that you haven't done before, done business in before, um, it's a really good time to do that due diligence process and make sure all of the ducks are in a row with the EOR and with your own internal processes and understandings of labor law um, to just get everybody on the team up to speed on how that arrangement should play out in that specific country. That's a great point. I just wanted to add as a reminder, Patty and I are working on actually exactly that type of due diligence checklist because it is a really, really important piece well before you've signed that services agreement. Right. So speaking of the services agreement, I know we mentioned it earlier, um, but is it really that important? What do you think? I think a little bit, right? Very. <laughs> Extremely. Yeah. And I, I think that um, sometimes in practice, companies are just, they're so anxious. They found, you know, Joe Schmo in gotta Indonesia, got to have him today. And you've yeah. got, you know, the recruiter hounding you and a hiring yeah. manager. And um, it's so tempting to just breeze through that process okay. and get somebody on board. But um, overlooking that opportunity to really clearly define the relationship and the shared liability is, it's just crucial. It is crucial. It definitely is crucial. And especially if you have any interest in enforcing any, you know, you have to have an employment contract. You know, there is one in every single country outside the right. U.S., whether you write it down or not. So as I said, it's really important to take that opportunity to have a really good employment contract. So at least the employer of record and the employer, in fact, can be as protected as much as possible. And if there's any intention whatsoever of enforcing any employee obligations, right, in right. the employment contract, you're probably going to need the help of the ER to do that for you. And that's something exactly. you could probably talk about in, in the services agreement as well. Exactly. It's an opportunity to outline those expectations um, and um, service levels and that kind of thing at the outset, rather than waiting for there to be an issue. Um, and without a clearly worded contract, you could end up in a contractual dispute, either in arbitration or, you know, hopefully not in a country you're not familiar litigating with them, yeah. which is a challenge in and of itself. Absolutely. All right. So here's a sort of practical question, like setting aside all of the potential legal implications that are triggered by this arrangement. Like, what should we be looking for with an EOR? Like, I, you know, I, there are some that I know that I've worked with over the years, yeah. but I really have noticed, you know, probably as a direct result of COVID and remote work becoming so popular, just an incredible like outcropping of so many ERs to choose from, so many PEOs to choose from. Yeah. Like, what do you do? How do you find the right one? 
Yeah, it's a booming business yeah. with COVID, to say the least, with everybody, um, you know, recruiting without borders, which I think is a wonderful thing, um, and, and finding talent where they wouldn't have found it before. Um, but there's two things that I would really look for in an EOR. The first is responsiveness. Um, it's incredible how many of these organizations really aren't um, as responsive as you need them to be after the contracting stage, after the sell of their service, when you're actually operating with them um, and you have an issue, you have a disciplinary you know, um, procedure that you need to go to or, or you need to write a PIP for somebody um, and you need their support with those things or terminating someone, you really need a partner that you can rely on that's going to pick up the phone when you mm -hmm. call. Um, and then on the second, the flip side of that, I think the second thing that's most important is um, an organization that's flexible, but also compliant. Sure. We have to balance compliance with and risk tolerance with the practical business like needs. Like the 80-20 proposition. Right? Yeah. 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 And having an organization that understands that, I think, is crucial, especially for U.S. businesses. There's a very... Um, um, there's a theme in how U.S. businesses expect to operate um, and they expect that model to work globally. And in order for it to work globally, then it, they need to work with organizations that understand that and understand mm -hmm. that um, sometimes they have to accept some risk. Yep. No, that makes a ton of sense. Well, thank you. This has been amazing. Yeah. And now I can think of like 27 other topics yep. that are related to this. So if you have questions, audience, please feel free to send them in. Yes, please. Um, and I think if we get some questions um, and people are interested, we'd be happy to do a second installment of this topic because we can talk about it endlessly. And again, Absolutely. I can't stress the fabulousness of having someone who actually was in one of these organizations doing exactly what Patty is describing, right? Looking to balance strategy, pragmatism, pragmatism, I think I said that right, and legal risk all at once. It's a really cool opportunity to have Patty here. So thank, thank you, Patty, so much for being available. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.